Nicholson Baker was born in 1957 and attended the Eastman School of Music and Haverford College. He's the author of seven novels, The Mezzanine, Room Temperature, Vox, The Fermata, and most recently, A Box of Matches, and there's Checkpoint, and the newest one is The Anthologist. Welcome to The Bibliophile. My pleasure. Very glad to be here. One of the things I've been doing with this uh, radio program over the last few years is just to try to document what's going on with the book right now. And uh, that's not necessarily unique. Everyone seems to be talking about the impact of... uh, In fact, Mm -hmm. you've recently written an article in The New Yorker about your experience with the the Kindle and the iPod. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, though, given your type of intelligence, the way that you burrow down and keep going down to the the essence, the minuscule detail. If you could just give us your take on what's going on. Well, I think what's going on is, is excitement and confusion and fear and also greed. I mean, they're all the things that go on when the, whenever there's a feeling of a change in the air. And, of course, there have been predictions of some kind of massive shift of format for many years, beginning with, really, with microfilm. There was the plan to microfilm everything, and, and then uh, scholars would have plastic scrolls, and they would have a machine that could read them in, in a very elaborate way and find locations quickly. That didn't work out. The new kind of excitement is really based on something that is at times beautiful. I mean, if you look at a book on an iPod Touch, it's not obviously the same, but it's fun. And I think that the, the reason things succeed is, especially handheld things, is if, if they create some sense of playful joy. And it's, at least for me, true that in the middle of the night reading a, an e-book on a tiny, shiny machine with the light turned low is not a bad thing at all. The way I've been thinking of it is that this iPod or this e-book may replace the paperback but I don't think it's going to replace the first edition or, or the leather-bound object. I don't think we know. My own feeling is that inventions tend to layer over one another. Radio layers over newspapers. Newspapers layered over smaller format newspapers printed on a different kind of paper. And television layered over radio. And, and each time there's a change in, I guess you could use a crude word like market share. In this case, well... I don't know. I, I think there, there are going to be a number of books that people want to read on machines, and the machines are going, going to get dramatically better. My quibble with the Kindle was not that it was a, a kind of abomination to read something electronically, but that Amazon had created a fairly clumsy prototype and then used its massive marketing strength to create a kind of excitement that was based on something that wasn't really a success. It might be that later on the Apple tablet, you know, the thing that people are talking about, or or one of the other e-book readers has a level of resolution that comes closer to a page of the book. That's the crucial thing, I think, is that print on paper is so beautifully crisp. I mean, crisp in the sense that when you look close, you can see the little blobs of ink and the grain of paper. There's no point at which it it pixelates. With screens, we're talking about a pixel density of somewhere around 160, 170 pixels per inch. This is terrible. It's not a good resolution level. It's a little bit higher than a standard computer screen. But until displays squeeze those pixels down 
and you can really get a, de I mean, a dense undergrowth of visual information so that when you read it close, the way you want to read a book, it still has things to tell you, details to tell you, serifs. It continues to open up with more information. Until we reach that point, an electronic book is not going to be a good way to read something that's long, that, that takes hours and hours of sitting, running your eyes over lines of type. There's a couple of things that seem to have happened. There's a movement away from the actual art and craft of ink biting into paper. There's also the publisher's role changing from mediating between art and craft and creativity. Is this sort of tradition being under siege a significant loss, or is this a magnificent, wonderful new frontier? Well, that is a, that's a good way of posing the question. I think it's somewhere in the middle, and so I can't be terribly interested when somebody in Slate or Time Magazine or something says that a machine like the Kindle heralds the end of books and magazines and newspapers as we know them, because it's, it's an overstatement. So I, I can't share that kind of millennial enthusiasm, but I also don't think that it's this terrifying demonic force that's going to undermine everything that we think of as important about the life of the mind. And the, the life of the book, the emotional attachment to it. To, to books, well, yeah. So we've got several things going on, and one is that we've got an alternative way that you plug into the wall and you can read words that normally you would have read in book form. And that has weaknesses, but it sometimes has strengths, like you can read in the middle of the night without turning on the side light, don't wake up your spouse. My attitude toward all this is that people love to have some novelty introduced that they, that they really like, and then they surround it with all kinds of beauty. I mean, you could look at, for instance, the book itself, what was just the words on the paper, and there was a whole evolution of type, as you know, and all that. But then you have book jackets, and book jackets are needless in a way. I mean, they're promotional. And yet, one of the things I really like about books, I'm not a collector myself, but any collector would say this, is they're so beautiful, mm -hmm. the outside of them. I mean, why would you want to keep something in pristine collection with no dents or dings in the corner, except that you're saying this outside of this slightly heavy object is itself part of the experience. It's got a design, a beautiful pale color, a, a choice of, of typefaces. And a One of the activities that gives me the most pleasure in life is putting a dust jacket into a mylar cover. <laughs> it's therapeutic, protecting. <laughs> it's conserving. It's it's parenting, <laughs> almost. This is what I've done with your copy of the Fermata. <laughs> and look how perfectly white it is. It is very white. And, I, and this is a 95, yeah, 94. Man, I, yeah, it's, it's been around for a while. And books are great because they do. They sit around and they don't ask for anything except that inch of space. Yeah. You know, they, they're not requiring format upgrades or pluggings in or anything like that. But, you know, I love the fact that you talk about this, the mylar sleeving, <laughs> Nigel, because I don't... Uh, I never learned how to do it. You know, and I, I, people, <laughs> well, I think a, there's a video. There's a video on YouTube on how to do it. Because I thought I would, I thought I would have a terrible time getting it to the exact <laughs> dimensions of the edge. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know what how to describe my approach towards books because I like them very much as objects. And because I like them as objects, and I'm not a real collector, I kind of enjoy when they're 
damaged and worn. Mm. It's shown the sort of provenance. Almost. Yeah, the provenance is is there, and I so I order a you know a used book from ABE Books, and uh, and it comes and it has underlinings. I, I love that. I yeah. mean, of course, it's not it's not the best way to read if the underlinings are all wrong. Yeah, which they sometimes are. But Another perspective, though, that you can yeah. disagree with. And there's little stars in the margin, and and someone sat on the book at some point, so the whole front has got a huge crease running through. And you know what? At a certain point, that mm. becomes speaking from the perspective of a collector, mm. that becomes valuable. I don't know how many years it is, but in Shakespeare's time, if you can get a contemporary's feedback oh, sure. that's very valuable whereas yeah. you know 10 years ago someone putting stars on the in the, right. the margins and writing thing not not so interesting right and it, it does it does matter i suppose there's a wonderful book on marginalia and, and the people who study it i would think would be more interested in the marginalia of coleridge than the marginalia of somebody in a survey college class you know just kind of trying to figure out what is the author trying to say mm-hmm. and yet I, I even like that I don't know what it it's is almost like a book club on the page yeah I also feel sort of that I'm rescuing this book if it's a beat up book mm. we have something called the swap swap shop near our dump and people just bring books in I used to go in there and, and they would always be kind of jumbled and I'd put them in order and they were interesting they would be Christian romance novels I didn't even know there was this the huge hundred was allowed oh of course it's allowed Premarital, no, though. Well, Christian romance novels are ones that I think end up with the Christian marriage, <laughs> um, but they have the same plot, and they have wonderful cover designs. With and they're sort of seventies mm. men in turtlenecks with jackets on them. And, and it's a huge, huge market too. The whole Christian thing. And, and so there'll be those that be discarded nursing textbooks. Churches will have gotten rid of their theological aids and stuff. And I had a great time, and I would often come home with some odd books that had traveled through other people's lives. The Golden Book Encyclopedia. Do you know that? I know of the Golden Books, but I'm not sure about that. Well, the Golden Book Encyclopedia was uh, important in my life because it was sold at A&P, the supermarket chain, and you could every week you could go and buy another installment. So this was something you looked forward to each week? Yeah, because they had beautiful covers. I never read the articles. You, you really do sound like a collector there. Yeah, well, this was when I was, you know, eight, six, six, seven, five, three years old, I don't even know, but just fun to have them as objects. One of the things that's fascinating, too, about this time is the concept of the gatekeeper, Mm -hmm. the arbiter of taste Mm -hmm. and power. The church had a monopoly in many places on the word, and then the printing press came along, and Luther, and spread the word via the the book to... Mm -hmm to masses. And now what's happening is regular, normal and abnormal people have access to an audience. They can become their own TV station, their own radio station, electronic newspaper, and vie for an audience with, and look pretty well the same as any other larger conglomerate that traditionally had the barriers of entry to stop people from getting into that activity. I think there's always a role for editors, a role for people who are good at picking and choosing and culling and winnowing. I mean, this is something that we need. There's a similarity in this world of many, many bloggers, the way you describe it, people, all, everyone having kind of something to say that they're putting out themselves. 
It's like the world of the pamphleteers in the very early phase of British journalism. And when you had something to say, you would you would write it in a pamphlet. You would and you could, whereas previously you, you didn't have much of an audience, right? The, you know, so the, the, the printing presses were cheap enough at this point to... Um, the, the mechanism of getting the words on the page worked well enough that you could get it out and sell it. And some people, like Daniel Defoe, made a fortune that way. I mean, he was a sensational journalist, the first really great one. Mm. And the plague and the Journal of the Plague Year uh, is one of his masterpieces. But he wrote innumerable smaller things and many, many pamphlets. And he was a great crime writer. And what he would do is write the story of a criminal in the voice of the criminal he, uh, the story of being in prison and one guy was condemned to hanging and he wrote this condemned man's story first person first person had it all published and the man himself said this is my story as he was on the way to the gallows and this thing sold like mad i mean it was the fastest selling published thing that had ever been so you had those kind of successes. On the other hand, I'm sure at that time they were the equivalent of the many, many bloggers who didn't have the kind of page views, shall we say, that, that Defoe had, because he was good. And at some point, things evolve, and, and editors say Defoe is better than X anonymous person. So all I mean to say is that not only is there always a need for news, for startling things, for funny, strange stories, the kinds of things that we've always been telling each other, but there's always a need for people to discriminate. And that is, there's always a need for editors. And that, that need is primarily because we only have a limited amount of time, and we, we look to, what, experts, people whose tastes we respect, to yes. take that task away from us so that we don't have to waste our time. Sure, and if, if you if you read a, a blog you like and you look down and you see, ah, well, they're mentioning this guy, this guy, this guy, and I've seen those names before, but it kind of sits in your mind. There's a, a gradual sense that those people carry more weight somehow. I mean, it, it's just the way we work. You're looking for a wise person. You can call him an editor or somebody who has a lot of time on his hands to read and make hard choices, whatever. He is a person, she is a person who said, this thing is good, worth putting on the wall in a museum, and this thing isn't. This is the role of a critic. Yeah, or a travel guide writer. This site and sound in Toronto is one of the top three sites. If you go to Toronto, you must see this. And here's why. And here's why. I just think we need people like that desperately, and that any future technological innovation will always have a place for that kind of person, even though... There are certain moments, like the one we're in, which are a little confused because the ratio now has changed. I mean, we now have major publishing houses with the same number of editors, and then we have people writing their hearts out all over the web, and the aggregational mechanisms, the way to figure out who's worth reading or not, aren't working all that well, mm -hmm. which is actually what's, what's fun about it. The choice is incredible. Yeah, and, and you, you get to just the pleasure of typing in a couple of random words and seeing where you get, mm -hmm. which is, to me, it's not that we have lost the serendipity of the library or something, because I used to go into the library and just wander into a part of the stacks I'd never been and take a book down and look at it. I loved that feeling. Mm -hmm. You know, here's a grammar of Tagalog, the Tagalog language, and look at the words for raindrop. It's so exciting, I never knew that. Close the book and put it away, you know. 
Well, you get the same kind of thing, but the, the serendipitousness is going to be different. It's going to have a different flavor. You're going to find different things. In fact, that's what's so impressive about your intelligence. You have this intense need to know, it seems, <laughs> right down to the, you know, to the smallest, most granulated split atom, it seems. Well, you know, there's sometimes when I'm a little bit terrier-like with the truth, you know, and I'm really, I want to, I want to figure it out. Sometimes uh, there's this word obsessive that is used about me, which I am interested by, because I don't really feel that the urge to tell the truth is not necessarily an obsessive urge. I see it as being a gift. You are gifted with a really powerful sense of curiosity. Maybe a lot of people are. The one thing that I do like to do, I did it with, for instance, with the book about libraries and microfilming and the brittle books uh, emergency that was was created really as a fundraising opportunity for libraries. I had a whole chapter there on this experimental program at the Library of Congress. Everyone believed that all books were going to self-destruct by the year 2000. I think it was some tiny percentage would survive. And that was all based on fake science by a guy who didn't even have a scientific degree who just came up with these predictions. That was another Y2K uh, catastrophe. It was, absolutely, and it, of course, didn't happen. Although it doesn't mean that paper isn't brittle. It's that what we ask of a piece of paper is that you can turn the page, not that you can bend the corner to the point that it breaks. And they were using this double-fold test, and that led me to the title of my book. In any case, I had a couple chapters on this method that the Library of Congress came up with to deacidify paper. They put these books in a, a big vacuum chamber borrowed from NASA and sucked out all the air. And they squirted in this exotic chemical called diethyl zinc. And the chemical was extremely reactive, and it would find any water anywhere and react with it and create an alkaline compound. And this was supposed to be sort of a magical transformation. Each book would be blessed with this chemical treatment that would make it impervious to time. <laughs> Immortal. It would make it immortal. And they really pumped a lot of money into this, and they had uh, chemists at the Library of Congress who believed in this completely, even though result after result, there were just terrible problems. The main problem is that diethyl zinc is, in the presence of air, it bursts into flame, and in the presence of any significant amount of water, it explodes. That was the sort of the beginning point, was... This is a very strange thing to be doing, to be putting these books in vacuum chambers and then do, doing something this risky. And in fact, there was a big explosion, a fireball, and the test books were destroyed. And it, they still carry on. But what I wanted to do was find out what diethyl zinc was. So this is where I became a little bit, you know, I want to find out. What is this thing, and what's the history of it? And it turns out the history of it had a whole secret part that it was of interest to bomb scientists. So I interviewed. I said, what did, what did you want to do with diethyl zinc? The guy said, well, you know, the fuel-air bomb, because you had to drop a bomb and spread out a whole bunch of some kind of flammable material, like, I don't remember if it was gasoline, but... So that it was dispersed in the air, and then you needed an igniter, and the diethyl zinc would ignite this thing and you'd get an enormous huge fireball with a shockwave. So there were tests of diethyl zinc as an igniter for this bomb. 
there's where I feel that I went down the, the corridor sort of intensely to the point where I'm actually calling up people who are uh, weapons scientists. I, I wanted to pin it down. Isn't that where all the roads lead in the United States? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you think about that. Because I talked to the one guy and he said, oh yeah, there's secret patents about this. In Washington, there are the, all the federal institutions, and then there's sort of the subterranean level where where there are weapons scientists and secrets and all that stuff. And it disturbed me that there was a, a link so that some of the people who worked at the Library of Congress on this method were you know, people who had top secret clearances. And that led me actually to a piece that I'm still in the middle of working on. Here's this bookish, great bookish institution. We love it, the Library of Congress. The biggest library, mm -hmm. is it, in the world? Collecting not just American books, but, but almost every book. Right. And of course, American books, it's sort of easy for them to collect because they require three copies from every publisher, which so they have an enormous revenue stream even from reselling. Yeah. But but still, it's a very wonderful institution, mm -hmm. and and yet there there was a, a secret program at the Library of Congress. Everyone who went in there had to have a security clearance, and it was all about bomb targeting. It happened in the beginning of the 40s and 50s. Well, speaking of detail, one of the the other things that I see going on right now with the book, and I'm speaking with Nicholson Baker, who is a uh, well-known, what should we say, father of two. 15 and... 22. Husband of one. Resident of Maine. Yes, South Berwick, Maine. Oh, the claim to fame of South Berwick is that a, an American writer named Sarah Orrin Jewett lived there. And this uh, the Sarah Orrin Jewett house is right in the middle of town, so we're very proud of that because she's quite a good writer, an essayist, and she wrote some poetry that was not very good, but, but she's a good observer of small-town life. And so you can go into the local library and see the Sarah Orrin Jewett books, kind of battered, but arranged proudly on the windowsill. Well, if we go into those small towns in Maine and in Vermont and uh, New Hampshire and uh, New England in general, there's quite a culture of almost like a backlash, just in the same way during the 1890s, William Morris and the uh, arts and craft movement reacted to the Industrial Revolution and the mass production. Mm. What I'm seeing is that there's a significant interest now in letterpress books, mm. fine presses, private presses, perhaps in reaction to what's going on digitally. Have you mm. noted that? And Absolutely. And it's true that it's a very New England thing, letterpress and all. I was just at the Twin Cities Book Festival in Minneapolis, and there were, I don't know, a hundred tables Many of them were small presses, some letterpress, chapbooks, things. And, uh, yeah, I think there's a tremendous excitement. It, my wife and I have been thinking, wouldn't it be great if we had a, a little press in the barn, <laughs> you know? The, the joy of uh, what? First of all, there's a, there's a wonderful tradition. There's a challenge there mm -hmm. because there is an artistic expression. And almost like poetry, you know, you sort of have to go with the rules, but you also want to express your creativity, putting your words into something that's that's beautiful that you made. Mm -hmm. uh, have you done anything like that? No, I haven't. My wife, whose last name is Brentano, I think is partly excited by it because... Publisher George Bernard Shaw. Brentano's books also did some really fine 
books with wonderful covers, translations of racy 19th century books. And I think we both just sort of have a, or, well, what is it? It's wanting to be in control of the means of production, or it's just wanting to have fun with the fact that you can write the words and also figure out how they settle out on the page. This is not to say that, you know, that uh, publishing things on a website doesn't give you some of that pleasure. It obviously does. Yeah. When I, I had to put together a website for the American Newspaper Repository, which was this sort of uh, huge collection of newspapers that ended up at Duke University, I had a wonderful time. Mm. Picking and selecting different fonts and oh, colors. Yes, and, and yeah. this was a Dreamweaver. I can't remember. That's one of those software names yeah. that you think, oh my God, Dreamweaver. <laughs> but now I, I just think Dreamweaver. Dreamweaver 4 or 5 I had or something like that. And uh, I thought, one thing I'm going to do here that people don't do is I'm not going to let HTML coding force me to have the space between paragraphs because that's not the way we read. And I was publishing things that were I wanted to look like real text versions of some of the articles from Pulitzer's newspaper, The New York World. So I had to figure out how to make the HTML have the no line space and an indent to make it work. And I had a wonderful time with that and put, picking out the pictures. And well, as you know, I mean, there's a tremendous creative pleasure in tinkering around with the layout of a website, which has got to be somewhat akin to the pleasure that you might have had with the pot of lead next to you and the linotype machine and setting out the columns of type and looking mm. at the galleys. Yeah, it's definitely not the zero-sum game, is it? it? But then, at the end of the, the day, you can direct people to your website, assuming it's up, like mm. mine wasn't this morning. <laughs> but you can't give them anything. They can't store that. Yeah. And then, if it's really special and important to them, they can't give it to their children. Yes, there's a brute persistence to an object. I think of it as a kind of, I don't know that this is true, but a kind of humility that a thing, a published thing, if you hand somebody a poetry chapbook, let's say. I was in a bookstore and I saw this and I bought it and here it is for you. And I, I'll put my name in it. To Samantha from Ron with love and, and it may just go on the shelf but it just there's somehow that willingness to just sit there and not demand any attention or even with letters you know bundling up a, putting the letters in a box and not looking at them for 15 or 20 or even 50 years and they're still there as opposed to the kinds of contortions that you have to go through to keep Microsoft Outlook alive you know in, in fact uh, I, I met with someone at the history of the book program at the university of toronto yesterday and they talked about the fact that they weren't going to buy the kindle i'm saying well what about an early edition of that that's crucial to the history of the book ah, good point but they suggested exactly what you have that well it, it would involve making sure that we had all the manuals for that particular piece of equipment and people knowledgeable on how to use it and mm -hmm and it becomes more of a technological mm -hmm. headache than anything to do with what they were interested in. But I guess what you were saying was that, uh, just in closing here, what, that there's the difference between a machine and a art. What I'm thinking of is, <clears throat> and I'd like you to read it, it's one of my favorite passages of yours, in Books as Furniture, an essay that appears in The Size of Thoughts, a collection of your essays. And of course, I, I, you can't do this with a Kindle. 
And it's the last oh, sure. paragraph of sure. that. There was something that you said that I was struck by. and One thing I thought about when I was using the Kindle. I certainly think, by the way, that it, it's not necessarily that, that a rare books department should buy it. But, of course, the early computers and the, the whole evolution of the early punch card sorting machines are all fascinating. And, and sometimes they're very beautiful. They're, they're fascinating to, to engineers, but are they fascinating to book lovers? I don't well, know. that's the thing. I think you get a different audience. The, the person who is really excited by the machine is excited by this particular thing. What I find, if you own a Kindle, it's true that you can go on a trip and have 500 books to read, and that's a really lovely thing if you're just traveling with a carry-on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the thing about the 500 books is each one of them looks so different. I mean, you can immediately find... The Kindle, there's sort of a fatigue mm-hmm. at the site. I actually am tired of looking at this one Same screen. old, same old, right? It's always the same. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking, well, this is a book, and it's different from this other book. This one's by Sir Walter Scott, this one's by Mary Renault, and this one's by some... And yet they all look the same. And there's a they've got the covers though, don't they? Have the, they have a picture of the cover. Yeah, you get yeah. you get a picture of the cover, and that helps actually considerably, especially in the non-Kindle Kindle, which is the iPod. You can see the cover in color, and that helps. However, sometimes it's it's just the pure wish for novelty that is part of this. It's some people the wish for novelty is in fact this machine. This is a new way of reading. I'm excited by it. And I, and that's enough. And I, I accept that. But for other people, the wish for novelty is ongoing. And so the machine is fine. But what you want is for each book to have a little... Its a own visual. character. Yeah. That's true, isn't it? I mean, the Kindle may, may evolve in the way it looks, but, but each Kindle is not unique. Mm-hmm. It's, it's saying, I am the main thing. You are going to hold me. And you, not only that, you're going to actually... The, probably by the end, if you read this thing a lot... There are going to be little wear marks where your thumbs hit only on this machine, not the dog earrings of hundreds of books, but just on this machine. And it's a different approach entirely. So, there are trade-offs. Let's see. So, you want me to read the last paragraph. Several times lately, encouraged by this foliated ferment in the children's section, or by the confident bibliophilia to be found in the bulk mail catalogs, I have stood before my own six undistinguished bookcases and regarded the serried furniture they hold with a new level of interest and consideration. The best bookcase moment, I find, is when you reach up to get a paperback that happens to sit on one of the higher shelves above your head. You single it out by putting a fingertip atop the block of its pages and pulling gently down so that the book rocks forward and a triangle of cover design appears from between the paperbacks on either side. The book's emergence is steadied and slowed by the mild lateral pressure of its shelved peers. And if you stop pulling just then, it will hang there by itself, at an angle, leaning out over the room like an admonishing piece of architectural detail. It will not fall. Finally, the moment of equilibrium passes, the book's displaced center of gravity and the narrowing area it has available for adjacent friction conspire to release its weight to you, and it drops forward into your open hand. You catch the book that you chose to make fall, and, with any luck, you read it. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for this uh, really interesting 
journey through questions that I don't have any answers for. <laughs> I've been speaking with Nicholson Baker, who uh, most recently is the author of The Anthologist. A novel about a poet who is trying to write the introduction to an anthology of rhyming poetry. Thanks again. Thank you.